0: The Insurrection in Dublin by James Stevens. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This is the final part, incorporating chapters 9 through 12. Chapter 9, The Volunteers. There is much talk of the extraordinary organizing powers displayed in the insurrection, but in truth there was nothing extraordinary in it. The real essence and singularity of the Rising exists in its simplicity, and saving for the courage which carried it out, the word extraordinary is misplaced in this context. The tactics of the volunteers as they began to emerge were reduced to the very skeleton of strategy. It was only that they seized certain central and strategical districts "'garrisoned those and held them until they were put out of them. "'Once in their forts there was no further egress by the doors, "'and for purpose of entry and sortie they used the skylights and the roofs. "'On the roofs they had plenty of cover, and this cover conferred on them a mobility "'which was their chief asset and which alone enabled them to protract the rebellion beyond the first day. "'This was the entire of their home plan,' and there is no doubt that they had studied Dublin roofs and means of intercommunication by ruffs with the closest care. Further than that, I do not think they had organized anything. But this was only the primary plan, and unless they were entirely mad, there must have been a sequel to it which did not materialize and which would have materialized, but that the English fleet blocked the way. There is no doubt that they expected the country to rise with them, and... "'They must have known what their own numbers were "'and what chance they had of making a protracted resistance. "'The word resistance is the key word of the rising, "'and the plan of holding out must have been rounded off with a date. "'At that date something else was to have happened which would relieve them.' "'There is not much else that could happen "'except the landing of German troops in Ireland or in England. "'It would have been, I think, immaterial to them where these were landed,' but the reasoning seems to point to the fact that they expected and had arranged for such a landing, although on this point there is as yet no evidence. The logic of this is so simple, so plausible, that it might be accepted without further examination, and yet further examination is necessary, for in a country like Ireland, logic and plausibility are more often wrong than right. It may just as easily be that, except for furnishing some arms and ammunition, Germany was not in the rising at all, and this I prefer to believe. It had been current long before the rising that the volunteers knew they could not seriously embarrass England, and that their sole aim was to make such a row in Ireland that the Irish question would take the status of an international one, and on the discussion of terms of peace in the European war, the claims of Ireland would have to be considered by the whole Council of Europe and the world. That is, in my opinion, the metaphysic behind the rising. It is quite likely that they hoped for German aid, possibly some thousands of men, who would enable them to prolong the row, but I do not believe they expected German armies, nor do I think they would have welcomed these with any cordiality. In this insurrection there are two things which are singular in the history of Irish risings. One is that there were no informers, or... "'There were no informers among the chiefs. "'I did hear people say in the streets "'that two days before the Rising they knew it was to come. "'They invariably added that they had not believed the news "'and had laughed at it. "'A priest said the same thing in my hearing, "'and it may be that the rumour was widely spread "'and that everybody, including the authorities, "'looked upon it as a joke. "'The other singularity of the Rising "'is the amazing silence in which it was fought.' Nothing spoke but the guns, and the volunteers on the one side and the soldiers on the other potted each other and died in whispers. It might have been said that both sides feared the Germans would hear them and take advantage of their preoccupation. There is a third reason given for the rebellion, and it also is divorced from foreign plots. It is said, and the belief in Dublin was widespread, that the government intended to raid the volunteers and seize their arms. One remembers today the paper which Alderman Kelly read to the Dublin Corporation, and which purported to be state instructions that the military and police should raid the volunteers and seize their arms and leaders. The volunteers had sworn they would not permit their arms be taken from them. A list of the places to be raided was given, and the news created something of a sensation in Ireland when it was published that evening. The press, by instruction apparently, repudiated this document— But the volunteers, with most of the public, believed it to be true, and it is more than likely that the rebellion took place in order to forestall the government. This is also an explanation of the rebellion, and it is just as good a one as any other. It is the explanation which I believe to be the true one. All the talk of German invasion and the landing of German troops in Ireland is so much nonsense in view of the fact that England is master of the seas, and that, from a week before the war down to this date, she has been the undisputed monarch of those ridges. During this war there will be no landing of troops in either England or Ireland unless Germany in the meantime can solve the problem of submarine transport. It is a problem which will be solved some day, for every problem can be solved, but it will hardly be during the progress of this war. The men at the head of the volunteers were not geniuses, neither were they fools, and the difficulty of acquiring military aid from Germany must have seemed as insurmountable to them as it does to the Germans themselves. They rose because they felt that they had to do so, or be driven like sheep into the nearest police barracks and be laughed at by the whole of Ireland as cowards and braggarts. It would be interesting to know why, on the eve of the insurrection, Professor MacNeil resigned the presidency of the Volunteers. The story of treachery, which was heard in the streets, is not the true one, for men of his type are not traitors, and this statement may be dismissed without further comment or notice. One is left to imagine what can have happened during the conference which is said to have preceded the rising and which ended with the resignation of Professor MacNeill. This is my view, or my imagining, of what occurred. The conference was called because the various leaders felt that a hostile movement was projected by the government, and that the times were exceedingly black for them. Neither Mr. Birrell nor Mr. Matthew Nathan had any desire that there should be a conflict in Ireland during the war. This cannot be doubted. From such a conflict there might follow all kinds of political repercussions, but although the government favoured the policy of laissez-faire, there was a powerful military and political party in Ireland, whose whole effort was towards the disarming and punishment of the volunteers, particularly, I should say, the punishment of the volunteers. I believe, or rather I imagine, that Professor MacNeill was approached at the instance of Mr. Burrell and Sir Matthew Nathan, and assured that the government did not meditate any move against his men, and that so long as his volunteers remained quiet, they would not be molested by the authorities. I would say that Professor MacNeill gave, and accepted, the necessary assurances, and that when he informed his conference of what had occurred, and found that they did not believe faith would be kept with them, he resigned in the despairing hope that his action might turn them from a purpose which he considered lunatic, or, at least by restraining a number of his followers from rising, he might limit the tale of men who would be uselessly killed. He was not alone in his vote against a rising. The Orahali and some others are reputed to have voted with him, but when insurrection was decided on, the Orahali marched with his men, and surely a gallant man could not have done otherwise. When the story of what occurred is authoritatively written, it may be written, I think that this will be found to be the truth of the matter, and that German intrigue and German money counted for so little in the insurrection as to be negligible. CHAPTER Ten. SOME OF THE LEADERS Meanwhile the insurrection, like all its historical forerunners, has been quelled in blood. It sounds rhetorical to say so, but it was not quelled in pea-soup or tisane. While it lasted, the fighting was very determined, and it is easily, I think, the most considerable of Irish rebellions. The country was not with it, for be it remembered that a whole army of Irishmen, possibly three hundred thousand of our race, are fighting with England instead of against her. In Dublin alone there is scarcely a poor home in which a father, a brother, or a son is not serving in one of the many fronts which England is defending. Had the country risen and fought as stubbornly as the volunteers did, no troops could have beaten them. Well, that is a wild statement. The heavy guns could always beat them. But from whatever angle Irish people consider this affair, it must appear to them tragic and lamentable beyond expression, but not mean and not unheroic. It was hard enough that our men in the English armies should be slain for causes which no amount of explanation will ever render less foreign to us, or even intelligible, but that our men who were left should be killed in Ireland, fighting against the same England that their brothers are fighting for, ties the question into such knots of contradiction as we may give up trying to unravel. We can only think, this has happened, and let it unhappen itself as best it may. We say that the time always finds the man, and by it we mean that when a responsibility is toward there will be found some shoulder to bend for the yoke which all others shrink from. It is not always nor often the great ones of the earth who undertake these burdens. It is usually the good folk, that gentle hierarchy who swear allegiance to mournfulness and the underdog, as others dedicate themselves to mutton-chops and the easy nymph. It is not my intention to idealize any of the men who were concerned in this rebellion. Their country will, some few years hence, do that as adequately as she has done it for those who went before them. Those of the leaders whom I knew were not great men, nor brilliant. That is, they were more scholars than thinkers, and more thinkers than men of action. And I believe that in no capacity could they have attained to what is called eminence nor do I consider they coveted any such public distinction as is noted in that word. But, in my definition, they were good men, men, that is, who willed no evil, and whose movements of body or brain were unselfish and healthy. No person living is the worse off for having known Tomás MacDonough, and I, at least, have never heard MacDonough speak unkindly or even harshly of anything that lived. It has been said of him that his lyrics were epical. In a measure it is true, and it is true in the same measure that his death was epical. He was the first of the leaders who was tried and shot. It was not easy for him to die, leaving behind two young children and the young wife, and the thought that his last moment must have been tormented by their memory is very painful. We are all fatalists when we strike against power, "'and I hope he put care from him "'as the soldiers marched him out. "'The Orahili also I knew, but not intimately, "'and I can only speak of a good humour, a courtesy, "'and an energy that never failed. "'He was a man of unceasing ideas and unceasing speech, "'and laughter accompanied every sound made by his lips. "'Plunkett and Pierce I knew also, but not intimately. "'Young Plunkett, as he was always called,' would never strike one as a militant person. He, like Pierce and Macdonough, wrote verse, and it was no better nor worse than theirs were. He had an appetite for quaint and difficult knowledge. He studied Egyptian and Sanskrit and distant curious matter of that sort, and was interested in inventions and the theatre. He was tried and sentenced and shot. As to Pierce, I do not know how to place him nor what to say of him. If there was an idealist among the men concerned in this insurrection, it was he, and if there was any person in the world less fitted to head an insurrection, it was he also. I never could touch or sense in him the qualities which other men spoke of and which made him military commandant of the rising. None of these men were magnetic in the sense that Mr. Larkin is magnetic, and I would have said that Pierce was less magnetic than any of the others, yet it was to him and around him they clung. Men must find some centre, either of power or action or intellect, about which they may group themselves, and I think that Pierce became the leader because his temperament was more profoundly emotional than any of the others. He was emotional not in a flighty but in a serious way, and one felt more that he suffered than that he enjoyed. He had a power. Men who came into intimate contact with him began to act differently to their own desires and interests. His schoolmasters did not always receive their salaries with regularity. The reason that he did not pay them was the simple one, that he had no money. Given by another man, this explanation would be uneconomic, but from him it was so logical that even a child could comprehend it. These masters did not always leave him. They remained, marvelling perhaps and accepting, even with stupefaction, the theory that children must be taught, but that no such urgency is due towards the payment of wages. One of his boys said there was no fun in telling lies to Mr. Pierce, for however outrageous the lie, he always believed it. He built and renovated and improved his school because the results were good for his scholars, and somehow he found builders to undertake these forlorn hopes. It was not, I think, that he put his trust in God, but that when something had to be done he did it, and entirely disregarded logic or economics or force he said, such a thing has to be done, and so far as one man can do it, I will do it, and he bowed straight away to the task. It is mournful to think of men like these having to take charge of bloody and desolate work, and one can imagine them say, oh, curse spite, as they accepted responsibility. Chapter 11 Labor and the Insurrection No person in Ireland seems to have exact information about the volunteers, their aims, or their numbers. We know the names of the leaders now. They were recited to us with the tale of their execution, and with the declaration of a republic we learned something of their aim, but the estimate of their number runs through the figures ten, thirty, and fifty thousand. The first figure is undoubtedly too slender, the last excessive, and something between fifteen and twenty thousand for all Ireland would be a reasonable guess. Of these, the citizen army or labour side of the volunteers would not number more than one thousand men, and it is with difficulty such a figure could be arrived at. Yet it is freely argued, and the theory will grow, that the causes of this latest insurrection should be sought among the labour problems of Dublin rather than in any national or patriotic sentiment, and this theory is buttressed by all the agile facts which such a theory would be furnished with. It is an interesting view, but, in my opinion, it is an erroneous one. That Dublin labour was in the volunteer movement, to the strength of perhaps 200 men, may be true. It is possible there were more, but it is unlikely that a greater number, or as many of the citizen army marched when the order came, The overwhelming bulk of volunteers were actuated by the patriotic ideal which is the heritage and the burden of almost every Irishman born out of the unionist circle, and their connection with labour was much more manual than mental. This view of the importance of labour to the volunteers is held by two distinct and opposed classes. Just as there are some who find the explanation of life in a sexual formula, so there is a class to whom the economic idea is very clear, and beneath every human activity they will discover the shock of wages and profit. It is truly there, but it pulls no more than its weight, and in Irish life the part played by labour has not yet been a weighty one, although on every view it is an important one. The labour idea in Ireland has not arrived. It is in process of becoming... And when labour problems are mentioned in this country, a party does not come to the mind but two men only. They are Mr. Larkin and James Connolly, and they are each in their way exceptional and curious men. There is another class who implicate labour, and they do so because it enables them to urge that, as well as being grasping and nihilistic, Irish labour is disloyal and treacherous. The truth is that labour in Ireland has not yet succeeded in organising anything, not even discontent. It is not self-conscious to any extent, and outside of Dublin it scarcely appears to exist. The national imagination is not free to deal with any other subject than that of freedom, and part of the policy of our masters is to see that we be kept busy with politics instead of social ideas. From their standpoint the policy is admirable, and up to the present it has thoroughly succeeded. One does not hear from the lips of the Irish working man, even in Dublin, any of the affirmations and rejections which have long since become the commonplaces of his comrades in other lands. But on the subject of Irish freedom, his views are instantly forthcoming and his desires are explicit and to a degree informed. This latter subject they understand and have fabricated an entire language to express it, but the other they do not understand nor cherish, and they are not prepared to die for it. It is possibly true that before any movement can attain to really national proportions there must be as well as the intellectual ideal which gives it utterance and the frame a sense of economic misfortune to give it weight and when these fuse the combination may well be irresistible. The organised labour discontent in Ireland, in Dublin was not considerable enough to impose its aims or its colours on the volunteers and it is the labour ideal which merges and disappears in a national one. The reputation of all the leaders of the insurrection, not excepting Connolly, is that they were intensely patriotic Irishmen, and also, but this time with the exception of Connolly, that they were not particularly interested in the problems of labour. The great strike of two years ago remained undoubtedly as a bitter and lasting memory with Dublin labour, perhaps even it was not so much a memory as a hatred. Still it was not a hatred of England which was evoked at that time nor can the stress of their conflict be traced to an english source it was hatred of local traders and particularly hatred of the local police and the local powers and tribunals which were arrayed against them one can without trouble discover reasons why they should go on strike again but by no reasoning can i understand why they should go into rebellion against england unless it was that they were patriots first and trade unionists a very long way afterwards I do not believe that this combination of the ideal and the practical was consummated in the Dublin insurrection, but I do believe that the first step towards the formation of such a party has now been taken, and that if, years hence, there should be further trouble in Ireland, such trouble will not be so easily dealt with as this one has been. It may be that further trouble will not arise for the cooperative movement which is growing slowly but steadily in Ireland may arrange our economic question and, incidentally, our national question also, that is, if the English people do not decide that the latter ought to be settled at once. James Connolly had his heart in both the national and the economic camp, but he was a great-hearted man and could afford to extend his affections where others could only dissipate them. There can be no doubt that his powers of orderly thinking were of great service to the volunteers, for while Mr. Larkin was the magnetic centre of the Irish labour movement, Connolly was its brains. He has been sentenced to death for his part in the insurrection, and for two days now he has been dead. He had been severely wounded in the fighting, and was tended, one does not doubt, with great care until he regained enough strength to stand up and be shot down again. Others are dead also. I was not acquainted with them, and with Connolly I was not more than acquainted. I had met him twice many months ago, but other people were present each time, and he scarcely uttered a word on either of these occasions. I was told that he was by nature silent. He was a man who can be ill-spared in Ireland, but labour throughout the world may mourn for him also. A doctor who attended on him during his last hours says that Connolly received the sentence of his death quietly. He was to be shot on the morning following the sentence. The gentleman said to him, Connolly, when you stand up to be shot, will you say a prayer for me? Connolly replied, I will. His visitor continued, Will you say a prayer for the men who are shooting you? I will, said Connolly, and I will say a prayer for every good man in the world who is doing his duty. He was a steadfast man in all that he undertook. We may be sure he steadfastly kept that promise. He would pray for others who had not time to pray for himself, as he had worked for others during the years when he might have worked for himself. Chapter 12. The Irish Questions There is truly an Irish question There are two Irish questions, and the most important of them is not that which appears in our newspapers and in our political propaganda. The first is international and can be stated shortly. It is the desire of Ireland to assume control of her national life. With this desire, the English people have professed to be in accord, and it is at any rate so thoroughly understood that nothing further need be made of it in these pages. The other Irish question is different and less simply described. The difficulty about it is that it cannot be approached until the question of Ireland's freedom has by some means been settled, for this ideal of freedom has captured the imagination of the race. It rides Ireland like a nightmare, thwarting or preventing all civilising or cultural work in this country, and it is not too much to say that Ireland cannot even begin to live until that obsession and fever has come to an end, and her imagination has been set free to do the work which imagination alone can do. Imagination is intelligent kindness. We have sore need of it. The second question might plausibly be called a religious one. It has been so called, and, for it is less troublesome to accept an idea than to question it, the statement has been accepted as truth, but it is untrue and it is deeply and villainously untrue. No lie in Irish life has been so persistent and so mischievous as this one, and no political lie has ever been so ingeniously and malevolently exploited. There is no religious intolerance in Ireland except that which is political. I am not a member of the Catholic Church, and am not inclined to be the advocate of a religious system which my mentality dislikes, but I have never found real intolerance among my fellow countrymen of that religion. I have found it among Protestants. I will limit that statement, too. I have found it among some Protestants. But outside of the north of Ireland there is no religious question, and in the north it is fundamentally more political than religious. All thinking is a fining down of one's ideas, and thus far we have come to the statement of Ireland's second question. It is not Catholic or Nationalist, nor have I said that it is entirely Protestant and Unionist, but it is on the extreme wing of this latter party that responsibility must be laid it is difficult even for an irishman living in ireland to come on the real political fact which underlies irish protestant politics and which fact has consistently opposed and baffled every attempt made by either england or ireland to come to terms there is such a fact and clustered around it is a body of men whose hatred of their country is persistent and deadly and unexplained. One may make broad generalizations on the apparent situation and endeavor to solve it by those... We may say that loyalty to England is the true center of their action. I will believe it, but only to a point. Loyalty to England does not inevitably include this active hatred, this blindness... "'this withering of all sympathy for the people among whom one is born "'and among whom one has lived in peace, for they have lived in peace among us. "'We may say that it is due to the idea of privilege and the desire for power. "'Again I will accept it up to a point, but these are cultural obsessions "'and they cease to act when the breaking point is reached. "'I know of only two mental states which are utterly without bowels or conscience.' These are cowardice and greed. Is it to a synthesis of these states that this more than mortal enmity may be traced? What do they fear, and what is it they covet? What can they redoubt in a country which is practically crimeless, or covet in a land that is almost as bare as a mutton bone? They have mesmerized themselves, these men, and have imagined into our quiet air brigands and thugs and titans with all the other notabilities of a tale for children. I do not think that this either will tell the tale, but I do think there is a story to be told. I imagine an esoteric wing to the Unionist party. I imagine that party includes a secret organization. They may be orangemen, they may be masons and I would dearly like to know what the metaphysic of their position is and how they square it with any idea of humanity or social life. Meantime, all this is surmise, and I, as a novelist, have a notoriously flighty imagination and am content to leave it at that. But this secondary Irish question is not so terrible as it appears. It is terrible now. It would not be terrible if Ireland had national independence. The great protection against a lie is not to believe it, and Ireland in this instance has that protection. The claims made by the Unionist wing do not rely solely on the religious base. They use all the arguments. It is, according to them, unsafe to live in Ireland. Let us leave this insurrection of a week out of the question. Life is not safe in Ireland. Property shivers in terror of daily or nightly appropriation. Other, undefined, but even more woeful glooms and creeps wriggle stealthily abroad. These things are not regarded in Ireland, and in truth they are not meat for Irish consumption. Irish judges are presented with white gloves with a regularity which may even be annoying to them, and were it not for political trouble they would be unable to look their salaries in the face. The Irish bar almost weep in chorus at the words Land Act, and stare not dumbly on destitution. These tales are meant for England, and are sent there. They will cease to be exported when there is no market for them, and these men will perhaps end by becoming patriotic and social when they learn that they do not really command the big battalions. But Ireland has no protection against them, while England can be thrilled by their nonsense— and while she is willing to pound Ireland to a jelly on their appeal. Her only assistance against them is freedom. There are certain simplicities upon which all life is based. A man finds that he is hungry, and the knowledge enables him to go to work for the rest of his life. A man makes the discovery, it has been a discovery to many, that he is an Irishman, and the knowledge simplifies all his subsequent political action. There is discomfort about being an Irishman. You can be entirely Irish and claim thus to be as complete as a pebble or a star. But no Irish person can hope to be more than a muletto Englishman, and if that be an ambition and an end, it is not an heroic one. But there is an Ulster difficulty and no amount of burking it will solve it. It is too generally conceived among nationalists that the attitude of Ulster towards Ireland is rooted in ignorance and bigotry. Allow that both of these bad parts are included in a northern outlook. They do not explain the Ulster standpoint, and nothing can explain the attitude of official Ireland vis-à-vis with Ulster. What has the Irish party ever done to allay northern prejudice, or bring the discontented section into line with the rest of Ireland? The answer is pathetically complete. They have done nothing. Or, if they have done anything, it was only that which would set every Northerner grinding his teeth in anger. At a time when Orangism was dying, they raised and marshaled the Hibernians, and we have the Ulsterman's answer to the Hibernians in the situation by which we are confronted today. If the party had even a little statesmanship among them, they would for the past ten years have marched up and down the north, explaining and mollifying and courting the black northerner. But like good Irishmen, they could not tear themselves away from England, and they paraded that country where parade was not so urgent, and they made orations there until the mere accent of an Irishman must make Englishmen wail for very boredom. Some of that parade— might have gladdened the eyes of the Belfast citizens. A few of those orations might have assisted the men of Derry to comprehend that, for the good of our common land, home rule and the unity of a nation was necessary if only to rid the country of these blatherers. Let the party explain why, among their political duties, they neglected the duty of placating Ulster in their proper persons why, in short, they boycotted Ulster, and permitted political and religious and racial antagonism to grow inside of Ireland, unchecked by any word from them upon that ground. Were they afraid nuts would be drawn at them? Whatever they dreaded, they gave Ulster the widest of wide berths, and, wherever else they were visible and audible, they were silent and unseen in that part of Ireland." The Ulster grievance is ostensibly religious, but safeguards on this count are so easily created and applied that this issue might almost be left out of account. The real difficulty is economic, and it is a tangled one. But unless profit and loss are immediately discernible, the soul of man is not easily stirred by an accountant's tale, and therefore the religious banner has been waived, for our kinsfolk of Ulster and under the sacred emblem they are fighting for what some people call mammon, but which may be, in truth, just plain bread and butter. The words "shin Féin mean ourselves, and it is of ourselves I write in this chapter. More urgent than any political emancipation is the drawing together of men of goodwill in the endeavour to assist their necessitous land. Our eyes must be withdrawn from the ends of the earth and fixed on that which is around us and which we can touch. No politician will talk to us of Ireland if by any trick he can avoid the subject. His tale is still of Westminster and Chimborazo and the mountains of the moon. Irishmen must begin to think for themselves and of themselves instead of expending energy on causes too distant to be assisted or hindered by them. I believe that our human material is as good as will be found in the world. No better, perhaps, but not worse. And I believe that all but local politics are unfruitful and soul-destroying. We have an island that is called Little. It is more than twenty times too spacious for our needs, and we will not have explored the last of it in our children's lifetime. We have more problems to resolve in our towns and cities than many generations of minds will get tired of striving with. Here is the world, and all that perplexes or delights the world is here also. Nothing is lost, not even brave men. They have been used. From this day, the great adventure opens for Ireland. The volunteers are dead, and the call is now for volunteers. End of The Insurrection in Dublin by James Stevens